Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project podcast with me, Matt Williams. And today I'm in conversation with Hannah Fraser, who is the world's leading underwater dancer and professional mermaid. Hannah uses her incredible abilities to create breathtaking photos and videos, drawing attention to the plight of marine wildlife. In fact, Hannah, or Hannah Mermaid, as she also likes to be called, and you can find her at Hannah Mermaid on Twitter, created the vocation of being a freelance mermaid and has featured worldwide for underwater conservation and performance art, creating her own spectacular tales and costumes and performing for film, music videos, campaigns, photo shoots and doing public speaking at environmental events and festivals. She swims with sharks, whales, dolphins, seals, turtles, rays and more in the depths of the open ocean. And she can hold her breath for minutes at a time and free dive to depths of over 50 feet, as she describes in the course of this episode. She also broke records as the first person to dance with tiger sharks on the ocean floor without any diving gear. And she was part of an activist group who paddled out to bear witness to the slaughter of dolphins in Japan, which was part of the, the film The Cove, which won an Academy Award in 2010. She's also worked with my previous guest, Sean Heinrichs, the underwater cameraman and photographer, and together they released a film called Manta's Last Dance that propelled manta rays into the global spotlight and helped to ensure the passing of a law which protected them worldwide for the future. She's a passionate advocate for ocean protection, female empowerment and animal conservation, as you'll hear. And in this incredible conversation, we talk about where her passion for the ocean stems from and how she became a professional mermaid. We talk about how she thinks we can all reconnect with marine wildlife. And of course, Hannah describes some of the amazing experience she experiences she has had diving and dancing with humpback whales tiger sharks and manta rays you can find out more about hannah at her website www.hannahmermaid.com and in the show notes for this episode i've put a link to her tedx talk as well as to some videos of her doing her incredible dancing underwater so please do check those out The Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of amazing people like Hannah who are saving nature in all sorts of ways. And we're part of Wild Voices Media, a global project bringing together emerging storytellers with aspiring environmental professionals. You can find out more about the podcast at wildvoicesproject.org and you can learn more about the global community at wild-voices.org. And remember that you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or in Stitcher. And if you've got the time to leave us a very short review, then I'd be really, really grateful. Right, I think that's enough from me. So let's dive straight in to this incredible episode about dancing with wildlife beneath the waves. I'm going to start where I usually start, or sort of where I usually start, which is usually by asking people 
um, how they build wildlife, the outdoors, nature into their into their day or their week. But you even sent me through some notes and said that one of your recent, very recent trips had uh, had taken you underwater with hammerhead sharks and pilot whales for the very first time. Yeah, it was such an awesome experience because I I had hammerhead sharks on my bucket list for quite some years now and it mm. just had never really come together and I'd been to Hawaii a couple of times over the last year to shoot with this friend of mine Alicia Ward and we just got rained out every single time and I said come on tell me when should I come she said come in March and we got out first day bright sunny day all of it Five minutes in, we see a huge pot of dolphins, and right after that, some hammerhead sharks, and then right after that, some pilot whales. And I was like, "Right on, girl! You knew exactly when to bring <laughs> me here." So yeah, it was awesome. They um, they're like hanging out with a big. I felt like I was following a big crew of mo- dudes on motorcycles. They kind of had this like big posse vibe where they were all just in sync and and like got this sort of uh, super tough but minding their own business kind of feeling to them. That, and that was the sharks? Or that was the sharks, yeah? That was the, yeah, that was the uh, hammerheads. And you saw pilot whales as well on that trip? Yeah, they're awesome. They're a, a really large type of dolphin, and um, they kind of come across like a big black torpedo kind of coming through the water at... at at a, a great speed, even though they look very relaxed, you, um, yeah, you're like, oh, there's something in the distance, and all of a sudden, these big black things are just shooting past you in this wild formation, and they they aren't dangerous, but they're definitely a little bit more intimidating than some of the other cetaceans. I'd say they're a little bit. They've got a vibe like orca whales, killer whales. Mm. Yeah, super cool. And were you guys, were you underwater on this trip or were you on a boat? Um, We were on a boat and then got straight in the water as soon as we had the opportunity. So yeah, we got close up, amazing. And a lot of the time I'm wearing a mask, uh, sorry, I'm not wearing a mask because I'm performing underwater and we're getting photos and whatnot. And so I often get the experience of what I've seen afterwards when I see the photos, which is quite removed. So I see everything kind of blurry and I, I, I feel it, but it's different. And this time I actually got a chance to watch them with the mask on as well. Mm-hmm. So there's some funny sacrifices I make to create the imagery, but then other people can get that experience vicariously through me, which is why I do what I do. Oh, that's really interesting. I mean, this is getting quite specific quite early on, but watching some of your videos of you dancing underwater without a mask and without any kind of gear, it kind of looks, watching a video, as if you're kind of, you know, looking around perfectly normally and able to kind of experience everything yourself. But that's interesting to hear that it's actually more difficult to experience it without the gear. Definitely. There's an aspect where I'm not encumbered by... Uh, air tanks and all of these heavy, you know, vests and all of this stuff that makes me feel a bit disconnected from the ocean. What I'm doing, I can feel it and I can sense the water on my skin and I can dance and I can jump and I can move. So I feel like I'm more in it, but visually, obviously it's blurry. I'm kind of guessing a lot of the time I see a shape come out of the darkness. I can identify it by the vague shape and, and I get very good at recognizing small visual movement cues from the animals 
without being able to actually see their eyes move or know exactly what's going on. So this, it's sort of like a sixth sense, I guess. But yeah, it's definitely difficult. <laughs> you know, I'm holding my breath. I'm usually cold. I'm working with buoyancy, trying not to sink or float. Um, you know, there's currents moving me around, all sorts of considerations. And then you've got often dangerous animals as well. So I try to make it look as effortless and beautiful as possible. And there's definitely a part of me that's in the flow with that. And then there's a concurrent part of my brain that's saying, okay, how long till I need to breathe? Or make sure you don't step on a sea urchin or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, I'm cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I'm sure. We'll, I'm sure we'll come back to this. But yeah, speaking to Sean last week, one of the one of the photographers that you've worked with, and watching some of the kind of behind the scenes videos as well, um, you know, it really becomes. You know, we'll come back to this, but it really becomes apparent yeah. that it's a lot more difficult than the than the videos and the photographs manage to make it look. They manage to make it look very effortless and graceful, but. Um, but it's actually a lot more complicated than that. I actually recorded a podcast episode earlier this evening as well with um, with a guy who did the first ever swim of the length of Britain. So it's a 900-mile wow. swim from the south to the north of Britain. I've been speaking to a lot of people over the past couple of weeks who have been doing stuff to do with the oceans and swimming underwater or swimming in the water. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's just really interesting to get that insight into how all the difficulty and all the logistics behind what can look like a really impressive and in some ways be made to look like quite effortless but nonetheless impressive feats um but like i say maybe let's come back let's come back to that in a in a bit but i wanted to ask about so you're not only an underwater dancer but you're also correct me if i'm not phrasing this right but the world's leading or one of the world's leading kind of professional mermaids um which was a passion that for you started at quite a young age, right? Absolutely. I was that kid who was always at the bottom of the pool saying, look at me, I can hold my breath so long, or I'm going to have my own tea party, and uh, I'm a mermaid. And then when I was nine years old, I saw the film Splash with Daryl Hannah, which totally blew my mind because it was the first time I'd seen a mermaid portrayed in real life. And I thought, wow, it doesn't have to be just this fantasy character in, you know, books or or artwork we can bring this to life in this reality and and I made my first mermaid tail which was highly non-functional but definitely gave me a sink or swim you know get it together don't die training (laughs) Um, it was basically plastic orange tablecloth material with pillow stuffing in the end um, with lots of tiny little cute scales all over it that I swam around in the pool with for about six months and learned how to be a mermaid And um, it it was something that just grew and grew within me. I spent a lot of time drawing pictures of mermaids. I loved the ocean. I didn't grow up near the ocean. I was um, kind of inland most of my life until I was Mm. uh, I'd finished university and I moved to gorgeous subtropical subtropical Byron Bay in Australia. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time I got to live near the ocean and just yeah spent all my time in there and started creating mermaid tales and performing as a professional mermaid and finally realized wow this is actually my career this is not just a hobby and when did that meet with kind of a passion for where did that passion for or interest in ocean and wildlife conservation start and merge with 
merged with his interest in underwater performance? I'd always been very conservation uh, aware, even before I became a mermaid. I remember dressing up like a forest fairy, going out to the forest in Byron Bay and standing in front of um, old growth tree loggers saying, you know, don't cut down our forest. So already I had this idea of using the physical appearance of being a young blonde woman, you know, that's a model Mm -hmm. and using that as a way to awaken people to stop killing our environment. So it was a natural progression when I created a mermaid tale and began performing underwater that I was immediately interested in the waterways that I was seeing around me. And as I began to travel more, I would see a beautiful place and go back two years later and all of the reef had died and the fish were gone and it began to become very apparent that it wasn't something I could ignore. It was it was calling out for immediate action and that most people didn't know about these issues. And as a mermaid, I could be a bridge between the ocean and the land to speak for those that can't speak for themselves. And what was the first time you got involved in, you know, in, in a conservation project or activity or action? The first one was in Byron Bay. They had a roadworks that was annihilating a riverway and we got out on this bridge above the waterway with a whole bunch of the community and I put on my mermaid tail and we were all holding signs and saying save the waterway and the police came and just tried to get everybody to move and there I am sitting in a mermaid tail I said well I can't walk what do you want me to do (laughs) you've sent everybody else away do you want to pick me up and take me away anyway the the um front page of the local newspaper ran a photo of me and my mermaid tail with the sign saying save the waterway and that was when it really clicked I was like wow this image can really help bring this message through and so I started working with a local filmmaker who was doing um, government funded uh, info documentary about the waterways and what we could do to reduce acidification and um, clean up the pollution And then uh, I got involved with a group called Surfers for Cetaceans and we began going to lots of the international whaling commissions around the world and attending the meetings and doing a lot of protesting against whaling, which is theoretically illegal these days, but there's still so many loopholes within scientific research which are being exploited by a number of countries around the world. So then we went and actually swam with whales in Tonga and had the experience of being with these magnificent creatures. And it was so mind-blowing and emotional for me. It was that moment that I knew I will put my life on the line for these animals. And it was through Surface for Cetaceans that you got involved in the actions against the dolphin slaughter in Taiji in Japan pan right which is covered in the the film the cove and um i said this to sean heinrichs one of the photographers who you've worked with sean's photography kind of of the um of the scale of the shark fin slaughter for example you know i've been interested in i said this to sean i've been interested in environmental issues since a very young age but nonetheless the scale of the impact that we're having that his photography showed me took my breath away and I don't think I'd really visualized or realized that it was at that kind of scale and similarly what what's happening in Taiji or what was happening in Taiji that's portrayed in the cove again 
I don't think I'd realised, particularly for ocean issues, the kind of barbarity and scale of the impact that we're having. And yeah, coming back to my original question, that was that was through surface facilitations that you got involved in an action against that um, that dolphin slaughter, right? Yeah. So my um, my ex partner David Rastovich was an amazing man, uh, incredible surfer, and his vision was to get a whole group of artists, activists, and um, musicians to go to Taiji and actually swim out into the bay when they were killing these dolphins so that we could bear witness and show the world what was actually happening. Because it's one thing to say to someone, oh, there's people killing dolphins in some faraway land, and people say, oh, that's sad, and then they get on with their day. But if you can show them footage of relatable people that are recognisable, they're maybe TV film stars or whatever, and they're out there and they're in the middle of a slaughter swimming through blood of dolphins that are screaming, it definitely makes a much bigger ripple. So that was what we did. It was one of the most heartbreaking emotionally heart-wrenching experiences I've ever had. I can't even begin to explain to you, but just to let you know, after we got out of the water, I cried for two hours straight sobbing because I just felt like all hope was lost in one sense, that humans had gone so far away from compassion that they could perpetrate these acts. And yet there was this other feeling of, incredible pride in the people that had come together to put their lives on the line for these animals and to really take a stand. So it was, it was just such a, a formidable and um, it was a formidable fight to enter into because there was nothing we could do to release these animals or to save them. It was literally just to bear witness and to show the world <clears throat> So we knew that going into it, there was not going to be a happy ending. However, through that footage being included in the Cove film, which won the 2010 Academy Award Best Documentary, so many people around the world became aware of it. The pressure has increased. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they did get um, dolphins taken off the government-funded lunch program for yeah. school children. <laughs> and they also got uh, the meat taken out of the local supermarkets in Taiji of dolphins. So small victories. Um, unfortunately, the killing is still continuing, but more and more people are protesting against it and waking up and, and hopefully compassion and, and these people that I see around the world who, who really care are, are using social media, using their platforms, using their power as influencers to bring this message to the world and, and we'll say enough's enough. These are sentient, beautiful, amazing creatures that des deserve life. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, well, I, I, was, I was wondering what was going on today in Taiji because the film, was, the film came out a few years ago and um, you mentioned that one thing that the film did achieve was getting it taken off the off the school lunch program and out of the shops and there in the film they show that um the dolphin meat actually has potentially toxic levels of mercury poisoning in it despite denials that that's the case from japanese government officials um and i must say that so i haven't had that many encounters with ocean wildlife but one of the one of the most special to me is a trip up to scotland and i took a boat from one large island out to a much smaller seabird island and during that boat trip 
about nine or ten dolphins sort of flanked and swam alongside our boat for about 15 or 20 minutes and it was just absolutely incredible I'll never forget that experience it was one of the most incredible wildlife experiences I've ever had and I've been to some pretty amazing places in the world um and then seeing the slaughter of the dolphins in the cove was I got pretty emotional watching that film I'll be honest it was Mm -hmm. it was pretty tough to watch but important to watch and I think what was so amazing was that you not only put you not only went and bore witness to that and stood up to it but also put yourselves in harm's way potentially as well by by doing that yeah it was no joke we actually had yakuza fishermen because the the mafia in japan is very linked to the fishing industry and they had yakuza mafia guys going into surf shops looking for this group of surfers that had done this action and threatening everybody and we had to basically jump out of the country as soon as we'd done this um action and take the footage with us because there was a lot of heavy heavy um interest shall we say in what we'd done and stopping that getting out and most of us didn't return to Japan for at least five years afterwards because they were threatening us with arrest and incarceration. And um, we knew that as we did the action, if the police actually uh, arrested us that day while we were doing it, they can hold you for 23 days, no questions asked, without actually even charging you with anything in specific. So, yeah, it was definitely really scary. It was one of the most intense experiences I've ever had, and I definitely felt like I was putting myself on the line. And, you know, there was some family and friends that questioned that. But for me, humans have just got to this point where we're ransacking the planet so ridiculously that if we don't put ourselves on the line, we won't have a planet either. So it's, it's if you think about it, it's really self-motivated. <laughs> yeah. We should all be very, very greedy to keep a planet alive. Yeah, well, I wanted to, I wanted to ask. Actually, I've sort of said a little bit in my own words about seeing the scale of stuff through through the Cove film and through Sean's photography and through the videos that you've been in. But what, in your own words, what is the effect that we're having on our planet, and I suppose more specifically on the oceans? Um, the word that comes to mind is cataclysmic. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, um, there's so many issues on so many different levels from pollution to overfishing to oxidization to animals just falling out of the the food chain so that we don't have the right balance anymore that scientists are predicting we have maximum a couple of decades before the ocean has died and will not support life if the ocean dies the air degrades um the balance of life on this planet goes off and pretty much humans don't exist so it's definitely nothing to joke about or to be like, well, I don't live near the ocean, so it's not really my problem. Every single person on this planet is going to be affected by what's happening in the oceans. So I don't see how anyone can put it off any further. I don't see how politicians cannot rule in the favour of conservation, and yet here we are you know, in America right now with a president that's rolling back all of these protections for the oceans, for animals, for environment. And I'm just, I try to stay really positive and I do believe in the spirit of humans that we are, you know, generally very good creatures. 
but it is sometimes really difficult to see how we're going to get out of this mess unless we take action right now. Mm. I, and you said earlier about um, you seeing the role of the mermaid as playing a bridge between between the creatures in the ocean and people. Um, one of the questions that I wanted to ask was what role have mermaids played throughout throughout history in our in our culture and folklore and what's the power of the mermaid figure in in you know bringing a message of protecting the oceans to people today yeah mermaids have always had this beautiful fascination for so many different cultures around the world and they've been portrayed from everything from you know soul-sucking man killers to glorious protectors of the ocean um but i think the ultimate thing that comes across is the allure that there there's these creatures that captivate and that inspire stories and myths to come alive and so what i see as this beautiful melding of the feminine which is something that is rising in our culture and is gaining more power and that is um, really a voice that needs to be heard because it's about nurturing it's about caring it's about femininity and gentleness and compassion and these are all qualities that we really need in our planet right now to save it and so melding that with the ocean which to me is the the lifeblood of the planet itself it's this um, birthplace of all life and so bringing femininity the womb of the planet and then putting it, it together in this nice package of a, a young female which the world likes to look at um, I think that that is a, a winning combination that we can use as a as a, a message board for these other issues that we don't really want to look at we don't like looking at the things that are ugly and so if we can package that in this beautiful inspirational imagery, then people are much more likely to take note of what's going on. Mm, yeah. Have you heard of, um, have you heard of Sylvia Earle? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, She's good. quite the legend. Yeah, 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 yeah. What you were saying just then and digging into your, you know, digging into your work made me think, uh, made me think a little bit of a podcast that I listened to not so long ago, which was an interview with Sylvia Earle. I'd be, I'd be interested in hearing, hearing your thoughts on Sylvia, actually. Well, I mean, she's just one of the first pioneer women that has um, explored the ocean and really brought that to us through media and through her own personal adventures. And so I guess I'm taking a leaf out of her book and adding a mystical, magical element to that feminine, feminine adventurer type and, and bringing it to, through social media to make people feel really excited about all of it. And for people who aren't familiar, she was the first person, not just the first woman, I believe, but the first person to walk on the floor of the oceans. Um, and in the in the interview that I heard with her, she spoke quite powerfully about the moment when uh, whale song was recorded for the first time and then listened back to and the kind of emotional connection that that sparked with mm. people and the turnaround that resulted in for for whaling um and what she was speaking about reminded me quite strongly of what you and sean heinrichs have been doing which is you know sean sean spoke about this when i spoke to him about creating an emotional connection with people and how he had this realization of not just not just showing people the bad but also trying to show people the positive and 
you know, create that emotional connection and mm. make this an issue that touches people's hearts as well. Exactly. Before Sean and I started working together, we'd both been doing some very intense um, work. Like I'd been all involved in the cove and seeing seeing the devastation. And of course, Sean had been doing some very intense eco-journalism that depressed him to a very high degree. And it was hard for us both to keep going with that stuff as important and necessary as it is. We found when we met each other that bringing the inspiration over the devastation was something that really spoke to people and and infiltrated the social media way more than just showing them all of these really heavy images over and over again, you know, like and everything's dying and the world's messed up and, you know, it's all your fault and you've got to do something about it and guilting people wasn't really pushing change as much as some of the things we've been able to achieve by showing beautiful, intimate connection between humans and animals having this incredible um, relationship under the water. And as Sean always says, you protect what you love. Mm. So we need to engender the feeling of love. And so what we've done is put me into these incredible situations where I can have close encounters with animals that are sentient, intelligent beings and show that to the world. And suddenly people are writing saying, oh my God, I've been terrified of sharks so much. I've never set foot in the ocean my entire life. And after seeing you dance with tiger sharks and touch them on the nose, suddenly I realize they're not mind, you know, blood killing man killers. We, that they're actually, you know, quite intelligent and, and, powerful, magnificent animals and that they're not just out to kill me, that I can make a connection with them. And I can't tell you the, the hundreds of letters I've received like that over the years of people expressing that I've changed their viewpoint simply by them being able to voyeuristically have the experience through me of connecting to these animals. I'll put, obviously I'll put links to your videos and stuff in the, in the notes accompanying the episode, but for people who might not have seen them, could you just describe a little bit what it is that, what it is that they'll see in the photos or videos and maybe you can use, I don't know, maybe you can use manta rays or hump, uh, humpback whales or, or even sure, tiger I'll, sharks as an example. I'll, t I'll tell you a few stories because they're all yeah. my best ones. <laughs> so um, the first encounter I had, as I said, was with humpback whales and the first time I saw them coming up through this endless deep, deep blue and you see the sunlight sparkling down into infinity and then this massive creature coming up, coming up underneath. And then I, I began to get scared because I was like, oh, my God, I'm the size of an ant. I am insignificant. <laughs> this creature is way too big to connect with me or to even see me. I'm going to end up on a flicked on its tail or fall into its blowhole. I don't know. And as it came up, it gently moved to the side. It looked directly in my eye. And this animal's eyeball is the size of my head. It is just mind-blowingly humbling when you are in their presence. And you could tell through every movement that it made and the way it looked at me and moved around me that it was infinitely aware of me. It had chosen out of the entire ocean to come up and interact because it could be anywhere other than where I was and it was very aware of how its movements 
displaced water to not upset me, not put me in danger. And it can come as close as a little wingtip but not touch you and it knows the distance between itself and you and it's choosing to interact with you. And so then I saw that it was um, a mother baby and and, uh, an escort, male escort, and they started singing to each other. Mm. And I could hear this incredible wailing sound reverberate through every pore, every cell, every bone in my body. And it was like taking the most incredible sound bath you could ever imagine. Sound travels through water much more viscerally than it does through air. So I could feel the rumbles in my stomach of this animal calling out. And it was as high as a high-pitched trumpet and then low as standing in front of a massive speaker stack at a concert. And uh, I feel like it rearranged my DNA. That's all the, the only way that I can really explain it. Mm. Something shifted, something was awoken, something changed. My emotions were profoundly affected. And from that moment on, I knew that these beings were infinitely precious to the planet and that they held knowledge, awareness, sentience, and, and just an, an energetic frequency at the risk of sounding very hippie um, that, that, is is like a linchpin of of holding holding the earth's frequency in the right place shall we say like they are necessary beings for us um and so that blew me away obviously <laughs> and then <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> words don't do it justice but i'm doing my best um and then as you said swimming with dolphins just lights you up there's something about them that's so infinitely joyful and playful and um, heartwarming that you can't help but smile and be excited. And as soon as they come up and start spending time with you, your day is perfect. Um, and then uh, manta rays were something that, uh, you know, I'd seen one or two little rays and I'd been fairly freaked out, like, oh, my God, what's that thing? And then I got invited to go and swim with these big giant manta rays in the ocean. Mm. And Sean and I did this project, which was two weeks before the Convention for International Trade on Endangered Species, which is a meeting of uh, international groups that meet to decide the fate of which animals will be protected and which animals will not. And they only meet every three years. So two weeks before this, Sean and I flew to Hawaii and at midnight in pretty cold water off the bay, we went down about 25 foot and I was bolted to the bottom with 50 pounds of weight and I had safety divers that would bring me air when I needed it. And then I took off the goggles. We had lights down there. So all I could see was these crazy big beams of light and then these huge massive manta ray figures that looked like aliens coming and flying all around me so close that I could nearly touch underneath their bellies and I began dancing with them under the water and I swear to you it was like something out of Close Encounters of the Third Kind because I couldn't see the photographers anymore my only experience was dancing in this weightless crazy dark lit up underwater experience with flying massive four meter wide animals 
<laughs> so, um, and they are so graceful, they put me to shame. I mean, I, I do my best under there, but I felt like I felt like the dunce ballerina in, you know, the the greatest dancers on earth had gotten together and I was <laughs> flopping around in in amidst them. They are like these glorious birds flying around inside the ocean and doing these gorgeous twirls and somersaults all around me. And so the footage that we got from that film, we put into a film called Manta's Last Dance. And that was shown at the Convention for International Trade on Endangered Species two weeks later to the delegates who were making the decisions. And 80% of the delegates stood up in favour of protecting manta rays. That was more than any other animal's support land or sea for that meeting mm -hmm. and before that time people had said oh nobody knows what manta rays are we just think they're scary stingrays that killed steve Irwin. you'll never get people to like them they're just too weird and so by showing them this interactive film we feel like it really helped to awaken them to the beauty of these creatures and to put them on the protected list and since then They've followed with um, other ray species and other shark species. And so it helped also set a precedent for protecting these creatures. And uh, swimming with tiger sharks was probably the most interactive, most amazing, mind-blowing experience of them all, the cherry on the top. Uh, so we went to the Bahamas and... We had quite a large crew with safety divers, obviously, because these are 17-foot mm -hmm. tiger sharks, which are considered some of the most dangerous animals on the planet. Mm -hmm. And what I found was they were so um, interested and so interactive that they were the only animals that came around again and again for physical touch and interaction out of any other animal in the entire ocean, hasn't let me pet them. These tiger sharks come and let me pet them on the nose and run my finger along their bellies as they go past. They weren't trying to eat me. They were coming in for cuddles. So it totally <laughs> shifted my perception. I, you know, Even being a mermaid that swims in the ocean all the time, I still had fear of sharks. But after that, I thought, wow, they're definitely worthy of a great deal of respect and awe and understanding in their natural habitats and their behaviours and knowing when to swim with them, which ones, what are their behaviours, when to get out of the water. But if you know them and you respect them, there is absolutely ways to connect with them in a, a safe and, and really beautiful interactive way. So... Yeah, I just I just find it endlessly entertaining to to connect with these animals. They're so much more pure in some ways than humans. Um, they're just so in the moment, and there's nothing else in the way of of connecting if you if you show up in their world with respect and knowledge and and just a, a feeling of love. Um. I've got a number of follow-up questions to, to everything you've just said. Um, going back, going back to the mantas, I wanted, I mean, I wanted to ask about the mantas, and I think you've just answered a lot of the questions that I had about them. But your your video, Mantas Last Dance, your film, and the the photos that came out of that as well had a reach that was like a lot of your work had a reach that went far beyond 
just the delegates in the room at CITES, but actually captured the imaginations of people, millions of people across the world through lots and lots of media outlets in different countries and in different languages. But the photos obviously transcend those language boundaries. Um, yeah, I think we had about 50 million views of tiger shark dance um, t called Tigress in the first 24 hours that was released on TV wow. and social media. And yeah, it went worldwide. People all around the world were freaking out because they had no one had ever done that. No one had ever without snorkels and goggles and masks and air tanks and flippers and all the, these protective things. No one had ever just gotten to the bottom of the ocean and danced with them and connected with them. So <clears throat> yeah, it really caused quite a stir and quite a shift in the public perception of what these creatures are. Uh, do you think, so that was kind of my question really, do you think it's just the novelty factor or do you think there's something more there which is that, you know, I know that in the US for example, you've seen wolves return to Yellowstone and in Europe here there's wolves are back in France and in the Netherlands and in in uh, Belgium as well and there's talk of you know rewilding large areas of the countryside do you think as our societies become more materialistic and more disconnected from nature there's also a kind of reverse trend or a force in the opposite direction which at times captures our imagination which is about reconnecting with some of that wildness and that your photos and films really demonstrate a way that maybe not not most people can do but a way that most people can imagine of reconnecting with something really wild that we've lost touch with absolutely i feel like we have gotten so far away from nature and our natural environment. We spend our days in boxes and then we get in our little cars and then we go into a concrete building. And when do we ever get right out in nature? It's, maybe you go for a hike once in a while for most people, but a lot of people will never have these experiences. And they're really, you know, I think their soul is calling out for that reconnection. And it fills something up in us. We're meant to be part of this ecosystem. We're not separate. And I think that the imagery we create is important because we've seen a lot of, you know, shark footage under the ocean and we all go, wow, that's amazing and cool, but ooh, they're so scary. Look, they look scary. And there's no context of a human next to it in most films and, and footage to show that they're not immediately going to eat us or attack us if we get in the ocean. So you put a young girl dancing with them and that completely shifts people's perception in a, in a whole different way than just watching nice underwater footage of these animals. So a lot of people say, oh, isn't it just a stunt? And, you know, why, why is the model going to be in there? And why do humans have to, you know, get in their environment? Well, we are their environment. They are our environment. We are an ecosystem that's that's completely enmeshed within each other and we've forgotten that. We've gotten too far away. So we have to learn how to, instead of utilising animals to just eat and clothe ourselves and, you know, be our slaves, basically, we have to learn how to be friends with them. We have to learn how to enter their world in a way that's not upsetting to them. So I think it's really important that humans get out there and have these interactions or at least appreciate seeing them on film and it's where that shift in the emotional relationship has been translated into more practical terms that there's been real change right so an example would be 
um, the communities, for example, in Indonesia, where there's been a shift from manta ray hunting to manta ray tourism, which exactly. is and I'm, more economically I'm sure sustainable and more environmentally sustainable. Exactly, as I'm sure Sean shared with you so much mm. of that incredible work that he's doing of actually showing his films of of animals and and the townspeople interacting with these animals to the local communities and and empowering them to have these relationships with these animals rather than just killing them and selling them off to fishing industries that has really shifted things from the ground up rather than trying to just tell people what to do from on on high from you know cities and whatnot it's really um it's a beautiful thing to it's strange a lot of these tribal people out in uh, remote indonesia and so forth they haven't created these relationships because they've been so subsistence level uh survival and they don't get underneath the surface very much they just fish from above and so showing them this footage of the animals before they're killed has been really eye-opening for them they're like oh my god we didn't realize these animals were so beautiful and that they you know looked so graceful under the water we just sort of ate them and killed them and and showing them that that if they create sanctuaries where these animals are protected and flourish and thrive and the whole ecosystem gets better that tourism will happen and they will make so much more money than killing them so yeah pretty impressive work and i know that you do engagement with schools and with children and you do a lot of talks as well is there a particular moment or experience that you've had where you've been speaking to a person or a group of people and you've really seen a change in someone's perspective or you've seen their eyes open through a story that you've told them um i did a ted talk in spain um and that was it was challenging for me because i'm often underwater i don't need to use my voice as much and i've been Mm -hmm. a physical model for most of my life and so then bridging that gap and becoming uh, a spokesperson for the ocean and giving these talks has been really um uh, a challenge and a beautiful expansion for me. But I find that when I tell these stories, it gives people so much more context to the visuals that I'm presenting um, and the backstories and how we did it and how the animals interacted that people get way more lit up and excited by hearing all of that backstory and the my emotional connection and my stories that they then, they they. Well, like I said, they they send me all these letters and they just tell me that their lives have changed and that they now go in the ocean for the first time and they view all of these animals completely differently. I've had a lot of people tell me they've gone vegetarian or vegan because their eyes have just been awakened to the beauty of animals in general. So it's it's hard to quantify when you're kind of like out there just telling your story because I think people then take it in and they say, well, that was really inspiring and then they go away and sometime later shifts start to happen, perceptions change, actions change, and over time it's hard to even quantify the effect that you've had by just sharing these experiences with people. Mm, well, I think it's that thing of it makes it, <clears throat> hearing your story certainly makes it really relatable on an emotional level and makes it possible to imagine the ways in which your own emotions and your own perspective on things could change. 
Mm. Um, I wanted to ask um, your your description of the experience with tiger sharks made me want to ask about is there a way in which you prepare or train for what you do underwater mentally physically in terms of diet and nutrition as well how do you kind of keep in in shape quote unquote in all those ways for for all the things that you're doing underwater yeah absolutely um well i've been a vegetarian since birth so the diet's already pretty on track but i've had to even tweak it more to really make sure i'm getting all the right nutrients and energetic um you know, energy that I need for a really intense journey. Like when we went and did the tiger sharks, it was a full week of diving every single day in really intense conditions. <clears throat> so um, I have to do a lot of yoga. I do dance. Um, I do a lot of breath work and free dive training um, and all of, and meditation just to get in the right headspace to even be able to relax enough in high pressure situations so I actually grew up doing all of this stuff through my mother, who was a meditation yoga teacher and took mm -hmm. us to adventures in India to different ashrams and so forth. And I didn't even know that all of the things that I was doing in my earlier life were going to be the perfect training for what I ended up doing as a mermaid. So it's sort of been my lifestyle in general that just continues my training, but it's something that I've been passing on to other people who now want to learn how to do what I do. I'm like, well, guess what? You have to do all of these things as well so that your body and your mind and your spirit are in alignment with being able to handle those extreme conditions. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. The nutrition thing is interesting as well. And, um, I was interested that you said that you get people writing to you who say that they've turned vegetarian or turned vegan. Um, I watched uh, I watched Cowspiracy and what what the health over the past six to nine months or so, and went from went from being a kind of fair weather vegetarian to going fully vegan. Myself. Awesome! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's pretty hard after watching that stuff to really like you can't disassociate from the connection between what's on your plate and what's actually happening anymore. Yeah, exactly. And it's that thing of, you know, sometimes it takes a while to trickle through. It took me a couple of months, but yeah, that stuff kind of, um, yeah, changes your perception and then that results in a change in a change in, in your action. own life. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask as well, I mean, there certainly seems, in the UK at least from my perspective, maybe it's different elsewhere, but there's a growing awareness, particularly of the plastics issue at the moment. And there was that very iconic image, I don't know if you ha you guys had it over there, of a seahorse clutching uh, a straw, a, a cotton a bug straw. type thing. Yeah, 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 a straw type thing in its, in its tail. Do you think, um, obviously not... not that image is not a hopeful one. That image is almost kind of a quite heartbreaking one in a way. But do you think the awareness that it's that, that kind of image and your work provokes and the victories like manta rays getting added to the appendix list, do you think there's a growing awareness of, um, you know, do you think we're turning a corner in terms of our awareness of the impact that we're having on the oceans and what we need to do to, to turn that around? 
Yeah, I'm hearing a lot of good news in that regards. Uh, I heard that uh, I think it was France just banned all plastic cups, and then there's um, a lot of different places through Europe that have banned plastic bags. In California, we've started banning plastic bags in areas. So it's definitely trickling down. I don't know if it's fast enough because we're dealing with very, very intense issues, but I, it's heartening to see that changes are happening. Um, I think that governments have got to get on board a whole lot faster, and that means you, the voter, making those governments do the right thing. Um, and so, again, it all comes back down to the power of the people. Like We have to stand up and vote for the right people that are going to put these laws into action to save us. And we can't be complacent. We can't be greedy. We can't, you know, choose someone because we're like, oh, well, that'll be, you know, better for my taxes or whatnot. I don't know why people choose these people, but um, (laughs) it's not, we don't have the luxury anymore to be personally greedy. We have to be greedy for the entire planet at this point for our survival. I I wanted to ask, actually, what are the things that you think people can do in their, in their own lives? And... You know, in some ways that sounds so glib, like, you know, it's not just about switch, you know, switching your lights off more. But what what are the things that people can do individually or together in their communities to make a difference, particularly to ocean issues? Yeah, I mean, there's all those things. We know them. We've got to recycle. We've got to reduce our plastic use. We have to, you know, um, not pour horrible bleach and things down, down the drain all the time. We... Um, you've got to turn your lights off. So these are all things that we kind of like know and and basically accept and just have to keep our eye on. But then there's bigger movements, there's bigger projects. We have to find out the companies that are um, making these changes on larger scales because it's hard even if every single person did these little things, it's still those massive companies who are making huge impacts on our environments So it's choosing those companies with your dollar, which is one of the most important things, I think. Are they they eco-friendly? Are they recyclable? Are they biodegradable? Um, So don't just blindly buy whatever's in front of you in the supermarket. Do your research. Find the brands. Find the outlets that are going to support our future. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I've um, I've got just a few of my quote-unquote quickfire questions left the questions are quick but you can take as long as you want over over your answers um so the first one is um if if you could take if you could show people one place in particular that you've been to what what amazing or inspiring place would you take people to to show them oh gosh that's so hard there's so many amazing places (laughs) yeah sorry that might be a tough one (laughs) um uh let's see I think if everybody has the experience to see a humpback whale in Tonga, that will definitely shift people's perception because the impact on me was so strong and then it had a trickle-down effect that then led me to everything else. And plus Tonga is such a stunningly beautiful place to just see. Um, but then there's Hawaii, like Kona in particular, you go out there and you see five different types of incredible animals in one day. Like the ecosystem there is just mind-blowing. 
But then there's the Bahamas and, and it, the water's <laughs> warm and you can go and swim with sharks or dolphins or all these different things. So, God, the ocean? <laughs> go see the ocean. <laughs> go and see the ocean wherever you are, basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I definitely prefer my subtropicals. Yeah, the tropicals <laughs> are good. Yeah, it's definitely a bit balmier than uh, than it is here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and then what um, – are there any books that you particularly often recommend or give as gifts to other people? Or maybe it's not books. Maybe it's, maybe it's podcasts or maybe it's documentaries or something else. I just read The Deep. Um, I can't remember the author's name off the top of my head, but it came out in the last couple of years and it's um, amazing research about whales and dolphins and um, their language and uh, free, a lot about free divers and pushing the limits of the human body and what we can achieve and how we're actually um, hardwired to acclimatize to being in the ocean and there's like these trigger points that once we put our head under the water, you know, our body starts shut, um, slowing down the heartbeat so that we can hold our breath longer and really tracing back that we are a, an aqua being, an mm. aquatic being. So the deep, that's really cool. Um, another book I'm reading right now that just comes to mind, which isn't ocean related, it's just uh, consciousness related. It's called Oneness. And it's basically about how we are all one frequency. We're all one big consciousness and being that has separated into, you know, viewpoints of all these tiny little creatures and animals and humans. And we're all having these separate individual feelings and experiences. And yet how there is this energetic frequency that holds us all together. And so to me, that's really inspiring. And if we can truly get that concept on a cellular level, I think that a lot of the cruelty and the misuse of power and the degradation of the environment those things will naturally drop away so it's starting from the very very top up or the inside out um to address those issues rather than sort of trying to you know just recycle this or do that it's like a, a entire consciousness shift so those are two things that come to mind mm, that's really interesting on the deep i think um i think that idea of having these circumscribed limits on what we think we're capable of is i don't know it's a theme that's come up in a lot of the conversations that i've had recently for the podcast and i think you know obviously your work really challenges that perception of what we are physically capable of as people and very often we're physically and mentally capable of a lot more than we tell ourselves we're capable of or what other people might tell tell us we're capable of Absolutely. If you'd told me that I'd end up doing what I do now 20 years ago, I wouldn't have believed you. <laughs> but I also have always told myself that I am capable of much more than I could ever imagine. So it's just how much am I going to imagine for myself? What, um, what advice would you have for, for, I don't know, I suppose a lot of the people who might be listening to this podcast who might be people early in their careers or young people who are looking to get into environmentalism or ocean activism for example um get aligned with good uh organizations you know that's where you'll meet really great people and you can 
offer your work and you can find out what skills you have that can be utilized by offering them to these incredible organizations like like, like Sean's organization, Blue Sphere Foundation and um, uh, Oceana.org and uh, Wild Aid. So there's so many awesome people doing awesome things. You just got to you know, offer your skills and get aligned with them and that will open doors for being part of projects and for getting underwater and for doing these things. Um, do your research if you're going to go out and interact with animals find out more about them before you do that because it will really add to your whole experience and understanding of what's happening when you have those experiences. Um, what else? Just be brave. Throw yourself into the mix. Um, you, a lot of people just say, oh, gee, I wish I could do what you do, but I'm just too shy or I just don't or my, my, my parents think that I couldn't do that because I wouldn't make enough money or – you know, I've just, I just—I don't have the same skills you do. Well, nobody starts out with all of these skills. You just have to do take the next step and take the next step and and follow whatever it is that lights you up, that's passion, that gives you that passionate feeling. Because whatever that is, as strange as it is, even if it's being a mermaid, if you follow those footsteps into that career realm, you you will make a life out of it. If you do something long enough, people start going, oh, you're that person that's the mermaid. Um, we've got a mermaid job. <laughs> 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 do it long enough, beat them over their head with what you do long enough and, and uh, you'll get known for that. Nice. Um, and finally... Um... If you could put a message or a quote, maybe it's something from you or something from someone else, on a billboard for thousands or millions of people to see, what what would it be? Respect all beings as if they are you. Oh, nice. I like it. Mm. Cool. Okay. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to cover or that I haven't asked about? I think we did a good coverage. Okay, that was really amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on Twitter at wildvoicesproj or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much and until next time.